This is Fresh Air. I'm Dave Davies, in for Terry Gross. This month marks the centennial of the birth of legendary record producer Sam Phillips, who discovered Elvis and produced his first records, which many consider Elvis's best. Phillips also founded Sun Records and launched the careers of Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, Roy Orbison, and Charlie Rich. Elvis's biographer, Peter Goralnik, said that Phillips left a remarkable legacy, both of black blues and the white adaptation of it, which became rock and roll. Sam Phillips sold Sun Records in 1969. We're going to listen to Terry's 1997 interview with him. Let's begin with one of the first records Phillips produced in his Memphis studio, the 1951 recording many critics consider the first rock and roll record, Rocket 88, featuring singer Jackie Branson with Ike Turner at the piano. You've heard the noise they make, but let me introduce my new Rocket 88. Yes, it's straight, just one way. Everybody likes my Rocket 88. Baby, we'll ride in style, moving all along. Part of your genius has been finding musicians who brought together black music and country music creating rock and roll and rockabilly. I'm wondering how you were exposed to black music as a white man growing up in the segregated South. My interest in black music started at a very early age. I uh, worked with black uh, people in the fields. My daddy was a farmer. And he drew, uh, he grew cotton, and of course, cotton had to be picked and hoed. And uh, my father, incidentally, did not own the farm. He was a tenant farmer, and he, in turn, uh, would bring other people onto the farm uh, to help him. So um, we uh, were able to be together an awful lot with black people because of the closeness of. Uh, uh, the type of work that we had to do uh, uh, on the farms. You started your producing career recording blues musicians and leasing the records to companies like RPM, Modern, and Chess Records. You recorded Helen Wolf, Walter Horton, Bobby Bland, Little Junior Parker, B.B. King, the very start of their careers. I'm wondering what it was like for you as a white man in the South in the late 40s and early 50s to be recording black musicians. What was... Was it ever difficult to uh, have rapport? I'm wondering if they saw you as the man because you were recording them and because you were white. It uh, was a, a, a type of thing that I think most black people had uh, some doubt as to what, uh, quote-unquote, we were up to early on. Because in many instances, black people were taken advantage of and uh, maybe when they thought something was for free or for a certain price, it didn't turn out that way. I knew that the black people that I was going to record, uh, most of which had never seen even microphones, let alone a, a little studio, 
that the psychology that would be employed by me to have them feel comfortable and to do the thing that they felt they wanted to do in the way of music rather than to try to please or do the type of thing that a white man might want to do, uh, have them do, because I was not looking for Duke Ellington or Count Basie or Nat King Cole or any of the outstanding black uh, jazz and uh, pop musicians. I was looking to try to uh, obtain from them a natural uh, thing that they felt and uh, wanted to do. The people that I was recording were people that had, to a great extent, the feel for the things they had experienced and they loved. And the way they spoke was to the people was uh, through their music. Um, what was uh, your approach to making musicians comfortable so that they would be themselves in the studio and not try to be somebody else or not try, try to do something just to please the producer? How would you get them to be themselves? <clears throat> It varied with each one, of course, uh, because uh, the minute you had or tried to be non-condescending toward them, uh, they would pick it up immediately. Uh, It would vary with the individual. Believe me, black people never missed anything when they were dealing with you. You might think they were abstract and, and, and really did not care that much about hearing what you had to say, but they truly did. And so uh, it, psychology has always been, and I've never had one formal lesson in it, but I had a, a whole life of, of dealing with, with people, black and white, that were of uh, meager means, and uh, some of them were not as fortunate as even I. But uh, I, I really did not have a, a, a real difficult time in communicating what I believe uh, the necessary ingredients for them to relax and to, to do what they really, truly wanted to do, the type of thing. One of the great blues musicians that you discovered and first recorded was Helen Wolf, And... Um, I want to play your rec- the recording that you produced of him doing Moanin' at Midnight in 1951, and this was something that you did for, for Chess Records. I think it made it to number 10 on the R&B charts. Tell us, tell us about your first encounter with Howlin' Wolf. The Wolf, uh, as I've said so many times, is one of my favorite artists. Uh, he was so individual in the things that uh, he did, he had, number one, a voice that was so distinctive that there is nobody could mistake it for anybody else. That intrigued me. It was so absolutely untrained in so many ways, but at the same time it was so honest that it was just, uh, it, it brought about a certain passion just by listening to him to sing. And there was one thing about the wolf that you never had to worry about. Uh, when he opened his mouth uh, in a recording studio and he would talk real low when he was talking to you and he was a big man, about six feet four and weighed probably 225 or 30 pounds and, and nothing but muscle. But when he talked to you, you could barely hear him. When he sang to you, you hardly needed a microphone or an <laughs> amplifier. 
But more than that, though, I think that his ability to get lost in a song for two or three minutes or ever how long the song was, was uh, certainly uh, as good as anybody uh, I ever recorded. And when I say get lost in a song, I simply do mean that. And I think that is a good, uh, unsophisticated term of saying that uh, we all tried to get lost in what we were doing. And I think that was part of our success. Well, let me play this 1951 Howling Wolf record that you produced, Moon and I'm anxious to hear that, one of my favorite records. Well, somebody calling me, calling me on my telephone. That's Helen Wolf, a recording produced in 1951 by my guest, Sam Phillips. Sam Phillips, you started Sun Records, your studio in Memphis, um, uh, after recording for independent companies, other people's independent companies like Chess Records. Why did you want to start your own studio? Did you have a vision of what you wanted to do in your own studio? I actually never wanted to... Uh, actually form a label as such, like Sun Records. I wanted to be strictly on the creative end of it because I believe so strongly in what I believed in. <laughs> and I wanted to prove to myself one way or the other that what I had felt uh, apparently for an awfully long time was either uh, something that was worthwhile or that the public, if it uh, had the chance, would uh, would tell us that, uh, you know, you're on the wrong track. But I, uh, I guess that uh, after dealing with RPM and modern records and uh, chess, I guess I was disappointed in the way that I thought business was done. And I don't like to speak disparagingly of people because these were these people were my friends, but I <clears throat> had some difficulty and uh, uh, you know working with them from a standpoint of what I felt was fair and equitable in the things that we had agreed on. You started Sun Records after you had a nervous breakdown and even got electroshock therapy. I'm wondering if the two were related, if after the nervous breakdown you decided you had to, you, you had to be in business for yourself and do, do your own thing. Well, I had worked hard, as many people had, uh, all my life, um, I really 
did not know what, you know, the hands on the clock were for, for sure. And uh, I don't know that that was smart, but anyway, that's the way I felt about it. I was totally and completely consumed uh, in, in, in a way that I thought and still think was healthy. It was just that I was asking too much of my body to look after my deaf-mute aunt and my older mother and uh, two young children, Knox and Jerry, the two, and my wife, Becky. Uh, you know, I just had taken upon myself um, uh, just more than I could handle for many, many years. And so with the pressures of, uh, of trying to keep the doors open, to try to prove one way or the other, uh, about uh, music and what could be done with it. I just overworked myself and I had to go take electric shock treatments and that is a horrifying experience except, by golly, it, 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 it did the thing for me. I came back stronger than ever. I, 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 I do say, and I really truly believe this, that there's very few things that, uh, and I think this is one of the reasons that we had so much success and, and what we did in music is that so many people, although they may not have had electric shock, they went through some awfully hard times. And to have the opportunity to make a record and to participate in music and to be given that opportunity that they thought they'd never have, that had an awful lot to do with us being able to do what we ultimately wound up doing, which did affect the whole world. When Elvis first auditioned for you, I, I, I know that he, he sang in styles of his favorite performers uh, from, you know, white and black, from Lonnie Johnson to, to Dean Martin. What did you do to try to get a sense from Elvis of, of who Elvis really was, of what his kind of own voice was? Well, Elvis being as young as he was, and of course I'm, gosh, I'm 12 years and three days older than Elvis, and he's 19, I guess I was 31 or whatever. But I can tell you, the only time that we possibly had what you might say a difference of opinion uh, in what we were doing is that I really did not want to do some of the quote-unquote more popish things that Elvis truly did like, because Elvis, let's face it, had a, 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 an absolute beautiful voice from the beginning, trained or not. It was beautiful. But at the same time, he also had a certain intrigue about his voice, and I knew that, and I knew that we needed to feel our way around between uh, great gut bucket blues and, um, and, and country, I really, truly thought that. And um, so I think Elvis, if he had had his way, and he absolutely gave us no problem at all on it, maybe he wouldn't have put a country-type thing on the backside of each R&B record that we put out on him or each uh, quote-unquote black-oriented record. But I, I thought that was a thing to do at the time. Do you have a favorite of the Elvis Sun Sessions that... I really do, and, and, and I, I, you know, I really, I really do, and it, it uh, I've kidded about it a lot because I wrote the song. I really didn't. It was the song Mystery Train that uh, little Junior Parker really basically wrote it, and we did it by him on Sun, and we did it at an entirely different tempo and uh, approach, 
And uh, he had the idea for the song and came in, and uh, it wasn't quite like we thought it should be. And so I worked with him a little bit because I really did love the idea of the song. Uh, and so when we decided to do it on Elvis, it is something that I think that we did so entirely different, although Little Junior Parker's record was Elvis's favorite of the two. Uh, I have to say that both of them were my favorites, and I, I, I till this day, I'd have to say Mr. Train ranks way up there. But anyway, on, on, on the records that I did on, on Elvis, I, I mean, I really did like all the things I did on him. I really did. Now, uh, you know, hey, uh, the, 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 I'm trying not to be partial at all, but <laughs> okay. I mean, I really am because, uh, I mean, I just liked what we did, everything from... You're a heartbreaker. Now, that is absolutely the most nothing record in the world, except that it is something. Why don't we hear, since you produced Junior Parker's version of Mystery Train 2, why don't we hear both the Junior Parker and the Elvis version back-to-back? We're in for a treat. (laughs) Train I ride. Train I ride Sixteen coaches long Well, that long black train Carried my baby from home Train, train Train, train, coming round the Well, it took my baby, but it never will again. This Junior Parker and Elvis Presley, both of their versions of Mystery Train, both versions produced by my guest, Sam Phillips, the founder of Sun Records. You know, I, I have to ask you this. People, people are always saying that, that you used to say, before you discovered Elvis, that you used to say, if I could find a white man who had the Negro sound and the Negro feel, or if I could find a white man who could sing like a black man, I could make a million dollars or a billion dollars. Did you really say that? And if In so, essence, what did you mean? In essence, I did, and uh, I simply meant that um, uh, there was no feel better than the feel of black people and their rhythm. Uh, I I still, till this day, feel that that is uh, a true statement, regardless of the cultures that have changed to a great degree in many instances and just a slight degree in others. Um, <clears throat> I just felt like that black music um, at that time did not have. You have to keep in mind, radio was the big deal then uh, before TV, and there was there, there was no way uh, at that time. We got to go back, transpose ourselves forty something years here, and realize that uh, to get black artists played, it was very, very difficult because it wasn't that many stations on the air that were going to play black records. And I thought if we got a white person 
and people knew that he was a white person, uh, that there was a good possibility that we could broaden the base for both black and white uh, people that had talent. And that was my main reason for wanting to do that and saying, making that statement. Sam Phillips speaking with Terry Gross in 1997. We'll hear more of their interview after a break. This month marks the centennial of Phillips' birth. Later, we'll hear the story of how David Crosby and Graham Nash met and began working together. David Crosby died last week. And John Powers reviews the new HBO series, The Last of Us. I'm Dave Davies, and this is Fresh Air. Let's get back to Terry's 1997 interview with record producer Sam Phillips, who discovered Elvis and produced his early records and founded the label Sun Records in Memphis. This month marks the centennial of Phillips' birth. A lot of listeners have spent a lot of time over the years wondering, how would music history have been different? How would Elvis have been different if you never sold his contract to RCA? I wonder if you lose a lot of sleep thinking about that, if you spend a lot of time thinking about that yourself. I have not lost one wink of sleep about it. Um, I did give Elvis advice uh, that he really should produce his records when he left Sun because Elvis had an excellent ear. Corporate vice presidents of big uh, major labels, I don't think at all were into the idea of let's find something that truly is new and different. Uh, I just am taking nothing away from, uh, from them personally, but that was just a fact of life. Uh, I knew that um, there were a lot of things that RCA uh, put out on Elvis uh, due to a lot of the motion pictures and everything that he uh, uh, was making that really weren't the best material uh, in the world for Elvis to do. If I had had Elvis uh, right on up until the day he died, uh, I couldn't have kept Elvis uh, ultimately from being a tremendous force in, in, in music and influence on people, even if I had tried. Uh, I do not regret whatsoever any of the things that took place between the time I sold Elvis and all of this that we have even today. And you say, well, you mean all of that money and that uh, uh, total effect that, that has been had around the world? I feel like I was absolutely a part of that. And I don't care anything about claiming any credit for it, but I was a part of it because I recognized that Elvis Presley was unique as I did so many, many other people that had no opportunity whatsoever. Um, when artists like Elvis Presley and Jerry Lee Lewis were getting played on the radio, and it was just scandalous to a lot of people, you know, the, the kind of the the power and the sexuality of the music um, terrified a lot of adults, PTAs, church groups. What did you make of all of the fuss about early rock and roll? a lot of which you were responsible for. I mean, did you think it was funny? Did you think it was scary? What did it mean to you? No, I really did not think it was funny. Uh, I, I really seriously considered uh, uh, the fact that I knew that this was going to happen. People truly believed, a lot of people, you can call them hypocrites or whatever, 
But I, I can understand they thought that this was absolutely going to be the end of the world. And, and, and I saw it and I felt it. But I, at the same time, I thought this is just really one of the things that we will have to endure in order to find uh, out whether or not uh, what we feel about it is right. And if it's not right, then all they say is not going to kill it. If it is right, it will make it. Um, were you attacked personally in any way? Not personally, no. I was, uh, I mean, physically, but personally, oh yeah, my name was called quite frequently across the country and uh, especially in churches. And I'm a good old Southern Baptist and uh, whatever that is, but I, I you know, uh, that really, really, not that I wasn't cognizant of the, the people's real concern about this, but they had forgotten that the toughest time in a person's life, and I think any psychologist in this world will tell you this, is during the teenage years of anybody's existence. And teenagers did not have, before rock and roll and rhythm and blues, they did not have any type of music they could call their own once they got over four or five years old until they were uh, well into their 20s and were considered adults. So I, I just felt that this was a vast field that had been overlooked by just about everybody and that if we had a white person that they could justify maybe a little bit to their parents that, well, you know, it's, 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 it's a white boy or whatever. Uh, maybe the, uh, the actual feeling of resentment might not be quite as steeped in, uh, in the racial uh, aspects of it. You gave up recording in about 1963. You gave up producing uh, records. Um, wh- why did you stop? I think that the reason being is that I've always believed in younger people coming along along and uh, taking over. Um, it became very difficult for independent labels to make it because uh, at that time, the major labels found out that we weren't just going to fold our tent and go away. It, uh, when we started out, they thought, well, this is a passing fancy, and the chances are they won't be around long, so uh, we'll get back to our regular curricular activities. So, um, I saw the handwriting on the wall. When you would do what you did, had to do, and your distributors had to work with you, and then the major labels would come along and offer contracts that we couldn't even think about, guarantees, uh, because we were still very, very limited on, uh, on funds. And, and so it was no use in me being a farm club, so to speak, for the major league club. And that's exactly what it, uh, it came to be. So... I decided and I was not going to work because I was offered a job with RCA by Steve Scholes to go to RCA at the time I sold Elvis's contract. And I did not go because, number one, I knew I would not be of any value to uh, RCA because I had to do whatever I did, be it right or wrong, I had to do it, quote-unquote, the way that 
uh, I felt I had to do it in the way that I felt was necessary to prove what I had set out to prove. I knew that that wasn't necessarily going to work well with a a, a big company, and uh, it would be absolutely no percentage. It would be only frustration. I would accomplish absolutely nothing. You must have, or I would imagine that you must have really missed recording people when you stopped and missed discovering people. I'll always miss it. I sure will. Music, music is not an option, really, with, with, with people. Uh, we take it for granted, uh, people that are in it professionally, people that uh, just love it to listen to, and people that can take it or leave it. But music is the single most important element outside of, I guess, we need a little oxygen to, to breathe in order to be able to listen to music. But there is nothing on the face of God's earth that gives us more solace in more different areas and more different ways than music. And you better believe that if I could stay around here another 74 years and I could start all over again and have my way with a major company, or I, I would be recording people because there is nothing. There is nothing in this world that is more rewarding, whether you got a dollar out of it or not, than working <laughs> with, I mean, absolutely untried, unproven talent and seeing it come to the forefront and entertain, I mean, even the hardest-eared control man in the world behind that glass. Sam Phillips, speaking with Terry Gross, recorded in 1997. He was born January 5, 1923. He died in 2003. Coming up, David Crosby and Graham Nash tell the story of how they met and started making music together. We'll hear an excerpt of their 1990 interview. Crosby died last week. And John Powers reviews the new HBO series based on the video game The Last of Us. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Teladoc. Teladoc makes it easy to see a doctor right from your phone with 24-7 access to board-certified doctors. And where authorized, Teladoc doctors can call in a prescription to fill at your local pharmacy. Teladoc is available through most insurance plans, and if you're not covered, you can still have access to Teladoc. Download the app or visit teladoc.com slash NPR. David Crosby, co-founder of the folk rock group Crosby, Stills & Nash, and before that a member of The Birds, died last week at the age of 81. He was known for his great harmonies, his on-and-off struggle with drugs, his outspoken personality, and his songwriting, including the songs Deja Vu, Guinevere, Long Time Gone, and Almost Cut My Hair. In 1990, Terry Gross spoke with David Crosby and Graham Nash, who before joining Crosby, Stills, and Nash was a member of the British group The Hollies. I'd really love to hear the story about how the two of you first met. Is there such a story? Yes, there is, yeah. Can you tell it? The Hollies were in Los Angeles in 1967, maybe even late 66. And I had, on a previous visit, met a woman who uh, drastically changed my life. Her name was Cass Elliott. She was the lead singer uh, with uh, Mamas and the Papas. And on my next visit to L.A., when I was staying at the Knickerbocker, she called me up one day. She said, I want to take you somewhere. Be downstairs in the lobby five minutes. Which is, where, which is where the cast used to operate the world, you know. Be here, be here. So I was down in the lobby, and she rode up in this uh, red convertible Porsche and uh, proceeded to uh, drive me up Laurel Canyon. And windy, 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 and we end up at this house that also has a dark green Porsche. Was it convertible, David? 
No. No. A dark green Porsche in the garage. Led me up the stairs, and I see this uh, man who is lying on uh, on a settee with a tray of dope on his chest. <laughs> um, uh, uh, well, let's be specific now. It was a tray of... Marijuana. Marijuana at yeah. the time. Yeah. That's what we called dope then in those yeah. days. Um Rolling the most immaculate joints that I've ever seen that could very well have easily gone into a packet and been sold as, you know, consumer level stuff. And that kind of amazed me because I'd never seen anybody quite do this whilst answering the phone, whilst watching the TV and reading a book at the same time. Um, Eating too, probably. Yes, probably. <laughs> uh, we got on famously. David did not know who I was. Um, but Cass I the Rat didn't tell me who he was. Was she that just, intentional? Yeah, sure. She loved to do things like that. She didn't tell me who he was. I really liked this guy, you know, that she brought over. I, he was totally mystified about who he was. I hadn't the vaguest clue. And uh, then uh, after he was gone, you know, uh, later on, I said, well, who was that guy? And she said, you ever hear, King is in reverse? And I said, you're kidding, you know. <laughs> I, I'm a harmony singer freak. You know, I love harmony singers. You know, I love the Everly Brothers. I love people that can sing great harmony. And the minute you hear a Holly's record, you know, that's what you notice is this fantastic high harmony. And uh, so she told me I beat her about the head and shoulders for a while and said, I want to see him again. And that's how David and I met. So how did you decide to actually perform together? Well, we were friends before we ever um, got involved in music on that level. We both, of course, knew each other musically, and I was a great fan of, of his stuff on the, on the Birds albums. And uh, one day the Birds were uh, touring England, and David was in London, and I had his number, and he was staying at a, at a hotel that was strangely enough called the White House. And I said, hey, you don't want to be at the White House. Blue-haired ladies, old people, cigars, pit. come over and stay with me. So he came over to stay with me at my, uh, I had a, a Muse apartment in London. And uh, then he, we started to, to talk music, you know, and he left me with a tape of a very early demo of a song he'd written called uh, Guinevere and a song he'd written called Deja Vu and a song he'd written called Wooden Ships. I believe Long Time Gone was on there also. And so, you know, you know it, it, first of all, it, it amazed me that these songs had not been recorded yet because... You know, in hindsight, they were brilliant songs. Um, and so uh, from the very first musical inklings of, of this man, of this mass complex man that Crosby is, I began to realize that I would like to make music with this man, that he wrote and thought very differently than me. And yet there was something that bound us together, either our sense of humor or our sense of the ridiculous or our uh, sense of rebellion. There was something that linked David and I together from the very beginning. And uh, it remains to this day. Were there things you wanted to each do that you couldn't do with the bands that you were with, that Graham Nash you couldn't do with the Hollies? Obviously. That David Crosby you couldn't do with the Birds? Yeah. I, I'm not as sure now as I was then that I was being held back by the situation I was in. But I was certainly stuck in a role. I was, you know, the rhythm guitar player, harmony singer. And it was tough for me to to be you know, to, to be recognized as, as a singer-songwriter in my own right in that band and in that role. And I know that it was uh, even more so for Graham. Graham was writing songs that uh, absolutely stunned me. They were so good. And his band wanted to do an album of Dylan songs. And if, 
I think which if, is not if necessarily you've... bad, but they wanted to do it Las Vegas style. Well, no, no, I I really think actually the Hollies doing Dylan is like a yeah. really in, inappropriate. I'm choice. trying to be kind. I'm trying to be kind too. <laughs> uh, they make great records, yeah. but a Dylan song it's not the thing right. for yes, them to right. be doing. Not right. at all. Not even close. Not in the ballpark. And they had great songs. His songs. So I, I know that he was, you know, frustrated too. And uh, then my relationship with the with the birds came to, uh, you know, a, a a feisty end between me and them, and they threw me out. And uh, I started hanging around with Stephen, and then uh, we, you know, lucked into you know singing together. And it, the minute you sing together and hear that sound, you know, you know you want to do that, obviously. Now, I want to get back, Graham Nash, to your, your work with the Hollies. Now, you, you were writing, I mean, what I think was like great songs like Stop, Stop, Stop and Carrie Ann. I mean, um, did you feel like that was a kind of pop that you didn't want to do anymore? Um, it became so after a while. You know, we were trained to, uh, to write, and, you know. I don't think we ever wrote anything over two minutes and 50 seconds long. Mm-hmm. You know, it was, there was a Tin Pan Alley kind of training that we went through in the, in the late 50s, early 60s. And that's what I was kind of stuck in. But then having met David and Stephen and expended my awareness, not only on a personal level, but on a, uh, you know, by smoking huge copious amounts of marijuana, um, I began to change the way I felt about what was important in music. And I began to realize that the three-minute pop song, although it has its value, was not truly, truly important on a deep level. And so I began to write songs that I personally thought that uh, were, were better songs than just three-minute pop songs. And um, the uh, Hollies were not interested in those songs. And so I became, I, I began to question myself. I, I thought that it was me that was at fault, that I was wrong, that, you know, because there were four of them and only one of me. It was Crosby that saved my musical life by saying, wait a second, if you're crazy, then I'm just as crazy. And maybe we should stick together here. <laughs> Were there differences uh, in how you approach the music business? David Crosby coming from America, Graham Nash coming from England. I mean, there's some differences. We, have, we, we did have some differences about how we related to the music business when we originally got together. I had already gotten to a place where... For for my you know for my way of thinking the music business and the music press and all were adversaries, but I had been watching Dylan. See, I used to go and and go to press conferences with Bob Dylan and watch him, you know, play verbal ping pong with these people. And uh, so then when I came to England, uh, I had this enormous amount of irreverence, uh, you know, for it and. Uh, I think Graham liked that. He oh, was, I did. He was See, really tired of having You've got to understand, it, to David came to one of the Hollies press conferences in London. And the Hollies, because we were, you know, um, you know, controlled by the forces that made pop groups and we wanted to be famous and all that stuff, you know, people would say, okay, all stand on your heads now. Okay, click, click, click. Good. Okay, now take this orange in your hand and juggle with it. Fine. Click, 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 click. We went to a press conference and somebody asked me a question and Crosby s- stood in the way and he said, screw off. We're not answering that question, are we, Graham? Now, this shocked me (laughs) because we'd been used to treating the press like gods. And here is someone who treated them, you know, like dogs, (laughs) which is almost spelt the same way, but not quite, you know. So, it was amazing. So did that become a habit of yours afterwards? Um, No, I still still have more patience with with people in the press. David still is irreverent. David Crosby and Graham Nash recorded in 1990. Crosby died last week at the age of 81. 
Coming up, critic at large John Powers reviews the new HBO series The Last of Us. This is Fresh Air. The Last of Us is a current HBO series based on a hit video game of the same title. It stars Pedro Pascal as a grizzled smuggler who's transporting a teenage girl, played by Bella Ramsey, across a pandemic-ravaged America. Our critic at large, John Powers, enjoyed the first two episodes, but says it really kicks into gear with the third episode this coming Sunday. Here's John. I'm not exactly sure what started it. 9-11, maybe, or perhaps the 2008 financial crisis. But our culture has grown increasingly drawn to notions of apocalypse. From our politics to our pop entertainments, we're flooded by visions of social collapse, the rapid disintegration of a civilization that may have been unjust, but at least felt stable and reasonably safe. The world falls apart yet again in The Last of Us, the new HBO series that has led countless TV reviewers to yell, guess what, there's finally a good video game adaptation. In truth, the series initially felt a bit old hat. You had your usual post-apocalyptic landscape. You had another legion of the walking dead who required killing. But as it moves into week three this Sunday, you begin to admire how the show's creator, Craig Mazin, who previously did Chernobyl, has found a way of transforming a satisfying game into a satisfying drama. The action starts in 2003, when a fungal epidemic wipes out the world as we know it, shattering the life of our hero, Joel, a Texas construction worker played by Pedro Pascal. Twenty years later, the tough, gruff Joel is a smuggler in a bombed-out Boston, filled with partisan groups battling oppressive government forces known as FEDRA. Along with his partner in crime, Tess, that's an excellent Anna Torv, Joel wants to go west to Wyoming to find his brother. A rebel group called the Fireflies, the government says they're terrorists, asks Joel to take along Ellie, a smart-mouthed 14-year-old played by Bella Ramsey. And so they set off across a despoiled, post-Cormac McCarthy landscape of dead bodies, gutted cars, abandoned buildings, and mushroom-headed zombies who are actually less dangerous than the rebel groups and marauders who prowl the countryside. As Joel and Ellie slowly bond, the show introduces us to side characters whose lives suggest different ways of dealing with apocalypse. These include a lonely survivalist played by an off-brand Nick Offerman, a vengeful militia leader played by Melanie Linsky, and a creepy preacher. That's the great theater actor Scott Shepard. Needless to say, Ellie is something more than just a saucy teen. Here, early on, she's talking with the Firefly's leader, Marlene, and asks why the rebels had placed her and her friend Riley in a camp run by Fedra. Why would a terrorist dump me with Fedra? Because it's where you'd be safest, and you were safe there until you decided to sneak out. A terrorist? Was Riley a terrorist? purpose than any of us could have ever imagined. So we're leaving tonight, and we're taking you with us. Now, one day, some brainy soul is going to write a book chronicling how video games have changed the look of movies and TV. We've grown used to all those long takes of characters wandering through immersive landscapes. In The Last of Us, Joel and Ellie are forever moving and fighting through deftly production-designed scenes of ruin and decay that come straight from the game. This is a great-looking series. What makes it groundbreaking is that it's a series filled with feeling. 
For all their evocative worlds and attempts at empathy, most video games are still built around a procession of suspenseful sequences that require the player to do something, often something violent. Creating tension in order to release it, games are about adrenaline. But good drama is about emotion. What carries The Last of Us is not the spectacular design or bursts of action, which are far fewer than in the game. It's the spark between Joel and Tess, or Ellie's dawning awareness of the vulnerable decency beneath Joel's hardened demeanor. The series hits its peak when it sets aside the official let's-get-to-Wyoming plot and takes us inside the secondary characters. In this Sunday's upcoming episode, for instance, we get a long, touching sequence about the relationship between Offerman's don't-tread-on-me survivalist and a charming trespasser played by Murray Bartlett of White Lotus fame. Mason understands that, in our age of countless dystopian stories, the audience doesn't want unremitting bleakness. It wants to feel a bond with the characters. It's one thing for our digital avatar to shoot down some equally digital enemy in a game. Heck, the victim never seems human. It's another thing for Joel, played by an actor we like, to kill somebody who's as human as he is. Mason pointedly makes sure that we don't find such killing morally weightless, let alone fun. He makes the deaths register on Joel and us. And it's this recognition of humanity that offers a glimmer of hope. The world can be dark and ruthless, The Last of Us suggests, but that doesn't mean we have to be. John Powers reviewed the TV series The Last of Us on HBO. On Monday's show, What Happens When a Doctor Becomes the Patient? Neurosurgeon Henry Marsh describes how his own cancer diagnosis led him to reflect on the doctor-patient relationship, his own mortality, and medically-assisted death. He'll talk about his memoir called And Finally, and about his trips to Ukraine, performing surgery and working to improve the country's medical system. I hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. For Terry Gross, I'm Dave Davies. Dave Davies.